quickly start by talking about uh, what we talked about yesterday, because as many of you probably experienced the way I do, I don't know what happened to me even 20 minutes ago sometimes, let alone what happened yesterday. So we yesterday went over a bit of an overview of DBT and research. So trying to get some of your buy-in around why we would use this treatment. We talked a bit about principles and assumptions of DBT, and we also spent some time focusing on a few of the stylistic strategies as well as interventions from DBT. So we went through therapeutic style, we did a behavior chain analysis, and we briefly reviewed the diary card as well as watching Alan Frizzetti's video together. So today our roadmap is going to be fully skills-based. So we are gonna be talking about the four modules of DBT, mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And if we have a little time at the end, we might do another behavior chain practice together. So remember this uh, kind of blurry graphic that I showed you yesterday? Um, so we uh, talked about this in the context of how emotion regulation or dysregulation specifically happens for people who struggle with pervasive emotion dysregulation issues. So again, we talked about um, essentially in order to escape the intense reaction that people who experience this have, right? Where again, we have the uh, quick jumps of sensitivity with emotions, the plateau where people stay at a high kind of emotion dysregulated place for longer, and then have a slower return to baseline. The way that people deal with this, right, is to often engage in ineffective strategies, such as self-harm, drug use, getting into a fight, et cetera, right? Kind of um, what we call problem behaviors in DBT. And while this might give that short-term relief, the long-term consequences can be much more challenging, similar to what we looked at in the behavior chain from yesterday. So our job in DBT is to replace those behaviors with more effective ones, as well as to help shape a client's environment so that they are reinforced by being more skillful. So that the rest of the day, we're gonna talk about strategies from that four modules of DBT that can help our clients become more effective at managing uh, this emotion dysregulation cycle and specifically avoiding engaging in those problem behaviors by replacing them with more skillful options. So uh, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but realistically there are tons of skills in DBT and we do not unfortunately have time to do that all in a three hour presentation. So I'm gonna give you essentially the best of hits from DBT. This is not meant to be comprehensive. If you want to do more comprehensive training, again, in my last slide in the presentation, I'll go over where you can get more training if you're excited about doing this. And I'm gonna give you sort of the overview of things that I think are most universal and that you can start using immediately with your clients. So we're gonna start with mindfulness. And again, we talked about the idea that DBT is divided into these four modules. The first two are acceptance-based, right? Mindfulness being acceptance-based. So let's start by just defining what mindfulness is in the context of DBT. So mindfulness refers to the practice of being intentionally aware of one's experience in the present moment in a non-judgmental and compassionate way and accepting reality as it is rather than fighting against it or attempting to push painful experiences away. And many of you are probably familiar with mindfulness either from other modalities um, or perhaps your own spiritual or cultural traditions, or frankly, you've just heard it because it's a buzzword that's happening everywhere. I feel like there's been a real mindfulness movement of kind of um, co-opting this uh, Eastern practice and putting it into Western world. So DBT draws specifically from Zen Buddhist practice, which is Eastern tradition that's been around for centuries, right? So we are really bother borrowing heavily from those concepts in DBT. And mindfulness is the foundation of all things in DBT. The idea being that before you know you need to use a skill, 
you need to first be aware of the fact that you're feeling overwhelmed emotionally. And mindfulness gives us, I think of like a bird's eye perspective to check in and see what's going on, to see things in reality so that you can act accordingly. So for example, I need to know that I'm feeling really sad and knowing I'm having urges to isolate myself, for example, before I can actually do anything about it. So mindfulness aims to reduce our suffering, increase our sense of happiness. It works to increase control of your mind. So stop letting your mind or your emotions be in control of you and your behavior. And to experience reality as it is, basically seeing things as they are, rather than through a lens of judgment um, or through emotion lens. So we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about kind of two sets of skills here. Um, the what and how skills are essentially what you do and how you do it, uh, it, the mechanics of mindfulness. So what are you actually doing when you do mindfulness and how are you doing it? And we're going to focus specifically today on the how part of that skill, right? Because I think a lot of you all are pretty familiar with mindfulness already. I'm going to forego the basic mindfulness 101 explanation and instead talk about a more specific part of mindfulness. So again, mindfulness means Pay attention to the present moment, doing so non-judgmentally. So we're going to talk about the last part, which is around taking a non-judgmental stance. So let's think about what this looks like. So judgments are shorthand ways we have of describing preferences and consequences. So for example, if I encounter a rattlesnake when I'm out hiking, I'm not going to take the time to say to myself, this is a potentially dangerous animal because it might bite me and its venom would get into my bloodstream and cause problems for me. I would then have to be airlifted out of the situation in a helicopter and that's going to cost a lot of money. I'm sure my insurance isn't going to cover, etc. Right? I don't have time for that. Instead, I'm going to say to myself something like danger or bad. And then I can take actions appropriately to keep myself safe. In a situation like that, a judgment is shorthand to say what's needed so I can react appropriately and quickly. So judgments have a place in the world, right? They often get a lot of, well, they get a lot of judgment, actually. They get a lot of shaming, right? Um, so there's a place for them. But unfortunately, judgments can also um, come with consequences. So for example, uh, this may look like um, judgment distracting from reality. So judgments might replace facts, for example, because we judge, or when we judge, we often stop observing what's really there and get caught up in the judgment. They also tend to feed negative emotions, right? Negative or challenging emotions is usually the language used in DBT, but things like anger, guilt, shame, et cetera. So for example, if I describe my body as ugly and gross, my emotions are going to in turn jump up really quickly, and I'm probably going to feel shame or sadness as a result of that judgment I'm using to describe my body versus if I described it in a more neutral or non-judgmental way, right? Where I might have a little bit of a different reaction to it. So we are going to do an exercise together that involves you typing in the chat in just a second. So what we're going to do is I want you to think about one of your most challenging clients that you work with. And challenging, you're gonna self-define, right? Challenging for you personally, because it's stuff that comes up for you, uh, behaviorally, there are things that are tough to deal with, whatever like you define challenging as personally. And I want you to just like picture that person in your mind's eye for a second here. 
And I want you to take a second to think about the judgments you have toward them. What are the things you say in your head? What are the things you say to your coworkers? What are the things that you're afraid you're going to say to your client because you're feeling them? And I want you to write one or two in the chat. Again, of those judgments you have about that client. And I'm going to know that you all are filtering your judgments a little bit, because again, this is a professional situation. You may not want to say all of the worst things that run through your mind, but give me something, right? Some of the judgments that come up for you. Okay, doesn't want to change, entitled, manipulative. Are they even trying, needy, taking advantage? Unmotivated and inconsistent, there's no point, disrespectful. Yeah, a lot of the, I've seen like a lot of the same themes in here, right? That you are probably working very hard, it sounds like, and this person isn't motivated. They might be, feel like they're manipulating you, like a lot of the similar judgments. Parents are clueless. Yeah, only calls when they need something. Unwilling to change, great. Okay, so I want you to take a second as these judgments are coming up for you and have a moment to think about what emotion are you feeling right now as you judge that client, right? As those judgments come up. And you can close your eyes if that's helpful. You can just kind of, you know, stare away from the screen for a second. I want you to check in to see what emotion are you feeling right now? And you can put it in the chat as well. Great, a lot of frustration, uh-huh. Disgust, guilt, hopelessness, uh-huh. Okay. Again, a lot of themes here, a lot of frustration across the board here, annoyance. Makes sense. Anxious, having an urge to get away from that person, not knowing what to do next. Yeah. Okay. All right, great. So what we're gonna do next is we are going to practice taking a non-judgmental stance with the same client. And what that might look like, and you can read along on the screen with me if it's helpful, is we are taking the judgment out and instead we're describing facts, consequences, and or preferences. If it's helpful, I'm giving you a few like um, sentence starters if that's useful. So I wish, I don't like, this is ineffective or effective for, this thing happened in this way at this time, right? You're being very behaviorally descriptive, so very specific about what happened. So for example, if I'm in the same room as you with this client, I'm observing the same things as you are, right? That's kind of what we're looking at as fact-based uh, descriptions of somebody. So I want you to take a second and think about how to turn maybe that judgmental statement into a non-judgmental statement using just facts. When you feel ready, again, you can pop it in the chat. I don't like when this mother berates her client. Yeah, it's a statement of preference. I wish they had completed the document I requested. Yeah, 100%. Great. I wish she would try. I don't like when this client lashes out at me. And I would even take it one more step with that one lashes out is not very behaviorally specific. So I would say like when this client yells at me or like whatever the behavior is, even get more specific there. This person doesn't have anyone else. I wish his mother would answer our phone calls. Yeah, 
There's a lot of, I wish here, I'm actually noticing in your language here, there are a lot of things that you want to ha see happen. And I'm guessing because um, it would be more effective at alleviating their suffering. There's a lot of like care in a lot of these statements behind what you all are sharing. Okay, this is effective for withholding information. I don't like this client calls me every day. I don't like when somebody calls me lazy. Yeah, of course. I wish my client would welcome my support. Sure. Yeah, a lot of wishes here. So next, I'm going to have you take a second. Same thing. Check in. What's happening for you emotionally? What do you feel right now? Okay. A lot of sadness here. And then some people who are feeling still ineffective, reduced motivation. Okay. Let's keep going. Again, what are you feeling right now as you kind of use this non-judgmental statement? Somebody says they're feeling more hopeful. Yeah. I think one thing that I noticed again with those like I wish statements, um, it makes sense to feel sad, right? When you want somebody, something for somebody else and they're not able, willing, whatever to do it, sadness might be there. But one of the things that we sometimes see increase along with that emotion is empathy. Right, that we there's a cause for people's behavior. There's often a reason why somebody's doing something the way that they are, right? When we think about the idea of there's a function behind every behavior in DBT. So one of the strategies that both we as providers can use to develop empathy, but also our clients can use to um, sort of stop feeding their emotions, right? Like reduce that frustration, irritation, right? That we saw really continually throughout the chat as those judgments were coming up. And move to places like sadness, right? Sadness is an emotion that is important for us to feel and also one through which we can work through it, right? That's kind of a grief feeling that might be there. So practicing this as part of non uh, as part of mindfulness can be really crucial both to us as providers, but also to teach to clients. So next we're gonna look at the states of mind from DBT, because this is language that we use really consistently. And I've mentioned to you all before, right? DBT is working on building a life worth living. So when a client is trying to figure out what to do or say in a situation, we ask them to consult what's called their wise mind. So wise mind essentially is looking at um, what could you do that would be in line with both your long-term goals that also validates your current emotional state. And personally, what I like about wise mind is that it's only the client's wise mind, right? They are the ones in charge of what are their long-term goals as well as how to validate and how to validate their emotions. It's not up to their therapist. It's not up to anyone else. It's not up to society standards for them as a person, et cetera. And though we're certainly here to help coach our clients to find their wise mind, it is theirs and theirs alone. So we also encourage our clients to find their wise mind based on their own intersecting identities in a world so that's culturally aligned for them. So let's look at these three states of mind here for a second. So on the left, we have something called emotion mind. And emotion mind is mood dependent, right? It is emotion focused. And when you're in emotion mind, you are ruled by your moods, your feelings, and your urges to do or say things, right? There may not be a filter that's there for you. And things like facts, reason, or logic, they are not important. We are emotion driven, right? So many of us have been in this state of mind, maybe even today, right? Or maybe even very recently, where again, our lens is through our emotions. So if we're feeling let's say really angry, we are seen through things through that lens of anger, right? So 
everything's irritating us maybe, right? We see the worst in people. We see the worst in ourselves, right? Little things like we start to kind of point out that negativity that happens, right? Or same thing when we're feeling happy, right? Our lens changes based on our emotion. And there is a place in the world for emotion mind, right? It's not to say that this is all bad. There's situations in which being in emotion mind makes sense, right? When you're having a great time with friends, like that might be a great place for an emotion mind. Or if you are grieving the loss of somebody, being an emotion mind might be really important to help you get through that experience. So emotion mind has a real place in the world. And again, it can come with consequences, right? If we are really acting exclusively based on our emotions as well. So then we look at the other side here at reasonable mind, sometimes also called a logical mind. And reasonable mind is, I think of as rational, task-focused, and almost cool or cold. And when you're in reasonable mind, you are ruled by facts, reason, and logic. And your values, feelings, or emotions are not important. So this is a very dry state of mind when you're focused on the facts. So I think of, for example, a situation like if you're doing math, right? Um, when I'm doing a math equation, I haven't done one for a while, to be fair, but when I'm doing one, right, I am focused on facts, right? And my emotional reaction to the situation, it's not important, right? That I don't like math, that I don't like the outcome here, that I don't like the equation as it looks, any of that stuff, it doesn't change the outcome of the equation. So in reasonable mind, I'm really focused on what are the facts and the information here, right? Science-based professions are also really important around this type of thing too. There's lots of, again, places in the world for which reasonable mind is critical. And that being said, reasonable mind ignores emotions, right? Can suppress them, it ignores them, it doesn't pay attention to them or values them. And that can be a problem as well, right? For a lot of our clients or even for ourselves, when we suppress emotions, what happens, right? They tend to pop up at inopportune times uh, in ways that really like mess with our lives. So what we try to help clients find, again, with that idea of a dialectic or finding the balance is something called wise mind, which I mentioned before, which is, again, that synthesis between emotion mind and reasonable mind, where you're thinking about your long-term goals while also validating your current emotional state, meaning you are um, in reasonable mind to the extent that you are looking at long-term goals, what the outcome is going to be and you're incorporating your emotion. You are not steamrolling your emotions, right? You're not just in reasonable mind in that way. And this is a place uh, where we use mindfulness to find our wise mind sometimes, right? So that looks like maybe sometimes with the client sitting down with them and saying, okay, like let's figure out where you feel your wise mind, right? Some people describe it in their gut, like a gut feeling. Some people describe it as like a heart-centered feeling. Some people say it's totally in their head and not like a, feel, like a physical-based place. But the idea is when a client is trying to make a decision or figure out where to go next or what skills to use, it is really helpful for them to be in a wise mind place or at least acknowledging what state of mind they're in. Maybe they can't access wise mind at that time, but knowing, hey, I'm in emotion mind where like my emotions are at a 10 out of 10 intensity, that is also information for them to say, okay, so maybe I'm not going to make choices right now, right? Because the choices I'm going to make are not going to be thinking about the long term. They're only going to be short term based. So this is something we really cultivate a lot in um, DBT and we'll be talking about throughout the presentation as well. So let's move next to distress tolerance. Um, and somebody, actually, before we move on, somebody asked a question in the chat before about the definition of mindfulness. So let me go back and give that to you all before we move on, actually. 
So mindfulness refers to the practice of bringing intentional awareness to your experience in the present moment in a non-judgmental and compassionate way where you're accepting reality as it is rather than fighting against it or attempting to push painful experiences away. So distress tolerance skills are meant to be used in situations that are highly stressful and short-term. So this might be a situation where you're feeling very stressed or emotional and feel the urge to act on your emotions in a way that will not be of service to you. Such as, again, yelling at somebody, cutting yourself, getting drunk, whatever the target behavior is for you or for your client. We use distress tolerance skills to get through that difficult situation without doing something to make it worse, like engaging one of those target behaviors, right? Where that person's gonna regret that later, potentially. These skills are really about no longer being held hostage by your emotions, that you can feel them without having to act on your emotions that come with them. Actually, let me say that one more time. So you don't have to be held hostage by your emotions and that you can feel them without having to act on the urges that come with them. So for example, when I feel angry, one of my urges is to like hit somebody, right? I know that for me, that's not in line with my wise mind to hit other people. So part of that work for me is on, I can experience the urge that I want to hit somebody else without acting on it. And a lot of our clients don't always know that they can have an, a strong emotion or an urge and that they don't have to act on it. That is a optional thing for many people or for all of us actually. So part of the work is helping them understand that's an option. Now, one caveat is that these skills should not be used in situations where there is imminent danger. So for example, if your client is being physically or sexually abused, for example, we don't encourage them to use distress tolerance to get through it. We Instead, we work on change-oriented skills to help them get to safety. So just keep that in mind as well. Because distress tolerance skills are also again, about getting through that tough situation, we are also not changing the situation. These are acceptance-based skills like mindfulness is. So we have to often stack other skills to help prevent the situations from happening in the first place, solving the problem that might be there if it's a solvable problem or changing our reaction to it, et cetera, but that's for later on. So getting through a difficult situation without doing something to make it worse, that's the headline for distress tolerance here. So again, I'm gonna give you a couple of these skills from distress tolerance. Um, this is a kind of slightly more comprehensive list of what's available in DBT, and we're gonna focus on a few of these together. So we're gonna start with TIP. TIP is personally one of my favorite distress tolerance skills because it works quickly. Our clients like that, right? I like that personally when things work fast. And it also involves physiological changes. Right? And for a lot of our clients who are maybe skeptical of psychology or mental health stuff, um, or again, we talked about like our BIPOC folks who tend to um, express their emotions sometimes in more physiological ways, people often are more bought into a skill like this that is physically based. So let's break it down. So the T stands for temperature. So um, as a, a group full of mammals, right, so humans are mammals, one of the things that we all have is this thing called the mammalian dive reflex, right? This is a term that refers to the idea that when mammals jump into a cold body of water, once our face hits that water, our heart rate starts to slow down so that we need less oxygen and we can stay under the water for longer, essentially, 
right? Because I need oxygen to breathe, right? I got to go up to that surface. So this is an adaptive way to help us stay under the water a little longer. So we can harness this thing called mammalian dive reflex for people when they are physiologically aroused, right? They are feeling emotionally uh, overwhelmed, right? When that, our bodies start to react to that. So there are two ways we can do this. So the first is, I'm gonna take off my glasses so I can show you this. If we were in a room together, I would bring in some cold water. So you can fill up a sink full of cold water. You can have a bowl full of cold water, whatever is creative and you know, available to you. And you have your client dunk their face under. So this part of their face, right? This, I think it's called the orbital bone underneath your eye is underwater. That's the crucial part here, right? So you're having them go in segments of however long they can hold their breath, right? 20 seconds-ish maybe for your client. They're putting, holding their face under that water and they're coming back up again. And part of what we see happens is somebody's heart rate drops during that time. And that is one way to help people reduce their physiological arousal response. And that can be really helpful for our clients who are feeling emotionally overwhelmed. So that is one way we can do this. Again, cold water. And again, you can go back and forth, right? So for example, if it doesn't work the first time for your client, you can do it several times, for example. So 20 seconds in, maybe 30 seconds out, 20 seconds in, 30 off, right? Kind of in, in routine. The other option um, is if somebody doesn't have cold water available to them, you can also use an ice pack. And at my clinic, one of the things that we keep available is those um, first aid safety ice packs that you can just break. They don't have to be in a freezer, right? They just kind of automatically work when you crack them. And you, same thing, you're putting that under this orbital bone here. Again, tell me if my word is wrong, I think it's orbital, but on this bone under your eyes here, you're holding that ice pack. And again, you're trying to simulate the same thing. So your client is going to hold that ice pack here. They are going to bend down. They're going to hold their breath. Again, as long as they can, 20, 30 seconds, whatever. And then to come back up again, taste the ice pack off, check in to see how they're feeling. And again, you can do that in intervals as well. So one, Thing that's important about the skill is if your client has a heart condition, this may not be safe for them. So you want to check in with their primary or their cardiologist or primary care physician to make sure that it's something that's safe for them. So somebody's asking, is this based on a reflex that requires orbital bone to be underwater? Why does water need to be cold? So um, I don't know why the water needs to be cold, to be honest. That's a great question. That's something I can look up and get back to you about. Um, but it requires the orbital bone because that is the part that simulates the dive reflex. That's the part that is hitting underwater. So for example, if you jump into water and you don't put your face under, like if you don't wanna get your hair wet, for example, you're not gonna simulate the same response. The idea is that if this bone is underwater, you're not gonna be able to get oxygen, right? So it's, it's uh, basically your body reacting to the fact that you are fully submerged underwater. And so you can't breathe, right? You can't get oxygen at that time, which is why that dive reflex um, kind of jumps or uh, kicks in so that your body can slow down. And if your body just thinks you're like partly underwater, it's not gonna do that same thing because you're able to breathe oxygen, your head is above. So that's why it's important that we cover this part here. Okay. This one I would suggest you try at home as well, right? I, this, I use that skill in particular with clients in sessions because they're like, that isn't gonna work. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's try it, let's see. Right, because not everything works for everyone, of course, that's why we have so many different options of skills in DBT, but, um, it often tends to work better. And sometimes what I will do when I'm doing this in group, for example, is I will bring a heart rate monitor in, um, or it 
you can also bring in, um, like there's often heart rate monitors, for example, like on cell phones now that can use your finger. They're not quite as accurate, but they can work. It's a way of kind of showing your client, like there's this thing that happens and here we can see the results of it happening. All right, next is intense exercise. And this is as straightforward as it sounds. This is having your client do some form of exercise that gets their heart rate up. So actually the opposite of the temperature part of the skill. And it can be anything that basically makes them sweat. This is going to depend, of course, on your client's uh, physical abilities and also fitness capacity. So for some clients, this is gonna look like walking quickly, right? Something a little more basic that works for their body. For other clients, I've had clients doing push-ups in my office, right? Who are really strong and like work out all the time. You wanna have them doing something that again, makes them sweat and kind of brings their heart rate up. And you're doing this for a prolonged period. So ideally like 20 to 30 minutes that a client is engaging in this exercise, if that's safe for them to do and they can do it. Again, I have some clients for whom that is not a possibility because of physical ability kind of issues, but they're getting worn out quicker, um, maybe because their fitness level isn't super high. And so maybe we do it for 10 minutes. Again, the idea with this is you're really having your client check in to see, do I feel different emotionally? Because the situations in which we use TIP, if they have an emotion scale where let's say 10 is the highest, like strongest emotion you feel, and zero is like, I don't feel anything. This is the seven out of 10 range where strong emotion is happening, where again, you're really in that emotion mind. Next is pace breathing. Again, pretty straightforward here. We're gonna practice this together just for a second so I can kind of walk you through what it looks like. There's different variations, of course, on pace breathing, but one version I'll teach you right now is where we can breathe in for three seconds, hold at the top, go out for five seconds. You can modify this. Some clients like more like a five, hold at the top, seven, right? Depends on how quickly they are breathing and how they're doing at that moment. But let's try this together. We'll do like two or three rounds together. If you want to, you can close your eyes as we do this, but I would say take your eyes off the screen to give your eyes a break for a second here. And we're gonna breathe in one, two, three, four, five, hold at the top, exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Inhale, one, two, three, four, five, hold it. Exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you can do different variations here, right? Three and five, five and seven, whatever that person wants, whatever works for you too. Where we're trying to, again, essentially regulate their, their breathing system, right? Their nervous system here by giving them more of a routine of, of a paced breath. And again, part of what you might also be doing, there's some diaphragmatic breathing that can come into play here. So I will often have a client maybe put their hand over their chest as well as their belly with the notion that they are trying to fill up their belly, not just their chest, because that tends to be more shallow breathing that's not as restorative. So that can be helpful for your client as well. Lastly, we're gonna talk about progressive muscle relaxation or PMR. So PMR as a side note is really effective for people who have trouble sleeping. There's quite a bit of research on it. So if your client has trouble sleeping or has trouble like particularly with rumination before sleeping, this can be a really helpful uh, uh, tool for them to use. It can also be used for somebody who wakes up in the middle of the night and needs to go back to bed. That can be really helpful as well. 
There are about a million videos online. If somebody looks up on YouTube, a PMR video, same with pace breathing, actually, where if you are not there and it would be helpful for your client to have some coaching, you can give them that option of some of those clips to use on their own. And PMR can be as quick as like, let's say less than five minutes. And it can be as long as like 30 minutes, depending on what kind of thing your client is tolerant of. Again, I always start with less to build up their tolerance. But the idea with PMR is you are going through essentially each muscle group of your body and you're intentionally tensing it up and then releasing it. Here's the reason why, right? When you notice probably when you get emotional or stressed, your muscles get tense, right? Your shoulders move up to your ears, for example, your jaws clenched, et cetera. And the idea with PMR is that we are trying to release that tension, right? That's usually like a partial tension by fully contracting the muscle so it can fully release because it's at like a partial contraction all the time when you're feeling that way. So we're doing the full contraction, full release. So I'm gonna walk you through this. Um, let's do it with our hands to start, right? Because you can see those on my screen, it's a little easier. So we're gonna do this together and I'll just tell you first what we're doing and then we'll try it together. So I'm going to have you fully contract, like squeeze your muscles into a fist. Don't hurt yourself. So like, I don't want you to like have your nails indented into your hand too painfully, but fully contract going to hold for five seconds. And then I'm going to say, relax. And you're going to try to fully relax them and we'll do it twice. So let's start holding your muscles or uh, put your uh, hands into a fist. One, two, three, four, five, relax. Even shake out your hands if that helps. Again, same thing. Squeezing to a fist. One, two, three, four, five, fully relax. Good. And if you're doing this with a client, you are starting, for example, with their feet going up through their body, every muscle group, um, up into their face, right? Clenching their jaw can be a really helpful one for people who have like jaw tension. And you're just slowly moving up the body, going through each area, maybe once, maybe twice, depending on what that client needs in that moment. And this can be a really helpful exercise again, to helping somebody just fully relax. And as always, so as DBT therapists, one of the things that we sort of are agreeing to do in being, becoming this type of therapist is we're agreeing to use these skills ourselves, right? Not only because um, we want to be able to teach clients by example and be able to talk about the realities of using them, but also because we need them, right? These skills are applicable to all of us. We all deal with emotional stressors. And so the more that you can practice these, even just once or twice before you use them with the client, the better your client will do with using them. And also the more tools you'll have in your toolkit personally to be able to use that yourself. Okay, somebody's asking, does tip like cold water work for feelings of anxiety or is anxiety not so much an emotional response like anger and sadness is? Okay, so in DBT, we talk about anxiety as unjustified fear meaning fear is justified when there is a real and present danger. And anxiety makes us feel like there's a real and present danger, right? Um, but when we check the facts, when we look at the situation, we see, actually, this is a safe situation, but my body and maybe my brain are reacting as if it's not. So yes, you can absolutely use tip for anxiety. And I would think about it as like tip for fear, essentially, is the emotion that you're targeting in that situation. And again, anxiety has a lot of physiological response, right? We see a lot of pain and muscle tension and all kinds of things happening physio physiologically. So a tip can be a really helpful one for folks who are struggling with that. Absolutely. And then somebody's asking, does splashing water on your face while holding your breath simulate the same effect or do you need to fully dunk? 
technically, no, right? Like you do need to fully dunk your face, but I've had some clients who've told me they just splash cold water on their face for a period of time and it helps them. I think it's up to your client and what makes sense for them, right? Like if it works for them, I'm all about it. Um, but in terms of the way we offer the skill and usually the way we talk about it, I would say it's better to dunk if you have the possibility. Okay, last question here. So tip is to calm the client down and intense exercises help the client be more in tune with their body. Uh, no, actually all of these clients, or sorry, all of these skills, right, that are stacked here in tip are to help them um, make physiological changes to their body, both because it helps calm your body down, but particularly because it has the impact on helping you emotionally regulate, right? You can get back to wise mind. You can see more clearly the emotional intensity goes down. And all of these are, are functionally kind of attuned to making that happen for a client. So for example, um, it, since you're mentioning the intense exercise one, so one of the things I'll, I'll share about myself personally is when I'm really angry about something, I had like a crappy day at work or something happened, I will go and do what I call rage exercising, right? Which is where I go like hop on my bike or whatever thing I want to do that physiologically. And I just like go super hard. And it's my way of essentially like getting out my anchor, right? As a way to kind of slow myself down because I'm exhausting myself. And the same thing goes for our clients, right? When you are pushing your body, we often don't have a lot of room for emotions to be super intense anymore because we're kind of draining them out of our body by virtue of using our energy on that. So all of these skills kind of function in more or less the same way of that goal, just through different mechanisms. All right, great. So let's look at self-soothing for a second. So again, self-soothing is a skill that is not gonna be novel or new to you, but is one of our skills that we intentionally teach our clients in DBT. Uh, oops, sorry, I just fast forwarded for a second. And I think this one is really important because our clients are often already doing self-soothing on their own, right? They're making their favorite food. They're spending time with their cup of tea or coffee in the morning, right? They're already doing something that engages this. And it can be very reinforcing to our clients to know they're doing something right, quote unquote, um, and that we can have them generalize this skill to times when they're struggling, not just as a general thing that they might be doing because they enjoy it, but specifically having them um, notice when they're feeling emotional using that you know, mindfulness skill and then saying, okay, this is a great opportunity to practice this, right? So do it right in this kind of moment. So you're working more maybe to generalize this skill. So again, just by way of brief explanation, right? Self-soothing is really about helping you feel calmer, easing your mind and better tolerating a stressful situation or problem. And we can self-soothe using any of our five emotion or our five senses, vision, hearing, touch, taste, or smell. If your client doesn't have access to one of these senses, that's why we've got multiple ones. You can use other options for them. And as always, you mentioned before, right? Accessibility of these skills, it is going to be um, helpful to find options and offer examples that are cheap or free. So uh, for a lot of our clients, because they're low income or struggling on a fixed income, for example. So we have self-soothe kits, for example, at my clinic. When I work with people who do mobile kind of crisis work, I encourage them to keep some things maybe in their van. And this is something that your clients can also create on their own that they access when they're having a moment. And it can be a really fun project if you have family members or loved ones or partners who want to get involved in helping people create their self-soothe kit because they're really useful. So this might be including things like vision, right? That can be looking at um, a picture of somebody that they love or a picture of their animal or envisioning, like kind of having like a, uh, yeah, envisioning some place that feels peaceful to them, like right? nature, for example, right? Having that available to them. 
you're hearing, maybe that's listening to like soothing or invigorating music, uh, paying attention to the sounds around you. Uh, it could be like a white noise machine uh, that has different sounds on it that you can, you know, you can listen to on YouTube. There's plenty of those channels. Recording of waves crashing. It might look like touch, right? Having like a soft something that's in there or a fidget spinner or um, rubbing the lotion on your skin, for example. That can be really helpful. It can be around smell, right? Uh, it could be incense, essential oils, whatever smells are comforting to you. Smell is a very powerful uh, memory producer. So if you have uh, memories for your clients, for example, of times when they felt safe, when they felt comforted, you might have them uh, try to find a way to harness those and bring those in. Lastly, taste, right? Things that comfort food, right? For example, uh, peppermints, uh, cinnamon sticks, right? Things that help your client feel soothed through that sense of taste. And I often recommend when it's possible, things that hit more than one of these senses. So for example, going back to that like cup of tea, right? There's the feeling of the warmth on your hands. There's the smell of the tea or coffee even. Um, there is the taste as you're drinking it. There are so many different components that you can integrate into one simple kind of act. So again, it's about helping your client identify those more intentionally and use them at the times that are uh, you know, most critical for them to be doing self-soothing at. And lastly, we're gonna talk about distraction for a second. So distraction is a way that helps you bring your emotions down in their intensity to a more manageable place where you can see a situation more clearly. Again, so ideally going from maybe an emotion mind place to a wise mind place. And it, distraction works by giving you a break from interacting with whatever made you feel upset in the first place. And the skill is pretty straightforward again, and many of the people you work with are already using it. So this is again about increasing their intentionality about when they use it and increasing their likelihood of using it. One caveat though, is that our clients can often overuse it, right? So for example, avoidance can easily become, or excuse me, distraction can easily become avoidance. So for example, if instead of, you know, watching one episode of TV in order to distract myself from the fact that I'm feeling really upset about something, I end up spending the whole day inside watching Netflix and like not attending to my responsibilities or doing what I need to for the day, I might have gone from distraction as a useful coping skill to distraction as avoidance, where I'm not dealing with my problem. The thing I mentioned before about the stress tolerance, but distraction in particular, is that the problem often doesn't change, that we originally kind of had trigger us. And so we have to often go back to solve the problem in order for things to change. And when we just distract ourselves, we're avoiding doing the problem solving. And that can be not so helpful for us in the long term. Again, there are some situations for which if we just ride them out, we don't need to change anything. They just kind of go away. That's not a lot of our problems. A lot of our problems are repeat patterns that happen or things with our relationships or things that just happen you know, on a more regular basis to us for which we do actually have to change things in order for things to go differently. So ACCEPTS is an acronym. You all have probably already learned this. DBT loves acronyms. We're all about them. So ACCEPTS stands for um, well, we'll go through actually each category before I go through this. So activities. So again, that is something that you can do that's gonna distract you. Again, there's some options here on the list. I won't read through them, but just to give you an idea. Contributing, which is about helping somebody else in some way, which is a great distraction for a lot of us. Comparisons. And I wanna talk about this one for a second because people sometimes have a reaction to this skill. So comparisons are not about comparing yourself to other and then feeling like shit afterward. 
comparisons are about using an effective version of comparing, which is comparing maybe how you're doing now to a time when you were doing worse in the past and like basically seeing the, the more adaptive ways you've kind of changed or shifted over time. It can also be looking at people who are struggling, right? So reading about, you know, things that are happening in the news, right? And seeing not in a way of saying, I'm doing better than them and being like on, you know, feeling better about yourself necessarily, but to say it could be worse, right? Not in a way to invalidate yourself, but to say like, I could be going through this thing that's much worse also. And like, look how well I'm doing considering the circumstances. That's part of how we use comparison here. And we really want to make sure that we explain this one thoroughly to our clients because again, they can get back into the more um, unhealthy version. Next is opposite emotion, which is doing an activity that is going to give you a different emotion than you're feeling currently. So for example, if I'm feeling really sad, it is not going to help me feel less sad to listen to sad music that makes me feel more depressed, right? Or to watch a movie that is like a real tearjerker. Instead, you are trying to produce a different emotion. So for example, I'm gonna watch a funny movie, right? Or something that is going, read a joke book, right? Or look at TikTok and like, look at things that are funny on there. Something that shifts my emotional world to a different emotion than I was experiencing previously. Next is to push away the situation. And this is really about giving yourself a mental break from the situation. Next is through other thoughts. So things like, for example, um, getting a song stuck in your head are a great way to distract you from whatever you're worried about, right? Might drive you a little bit nuts, but it can be really helpful to like repeat words to a song in your mind, do a puzzle, listen to a podcast, something different. And lastly, through sensations. And this is a little bit, there's some overlap here with self-soothing, but this is, you know, uh, going out in the rain, taking a warm or cold shower, squeezing a stress ball, listening to loud music, right? Things that simulate other sensations for us that can be distracting from whatever the stimulus is that was upsetting us previously. So somebody's asking, could you repeat why and when distraction is appropriate and not just avoidance? Yes. Distraction can be helpful when we need to take a break from the situation that is causing us to feel emotional. And the idea is that we are trying to use distraction, let's say again, that zero out of 10 scale with emotions, if we're say at like a six out of 10 in emotionals, uh, emotions, we're trying to bring ourselves down to a four or five, somewhere where we can think a little bit more clearly so that we have the ability to approach the situation more skillfully or effectively, right? Because we often have to go back to the original situation in that, in that moment. So distraction is helpful when we use it as a tool to reduce the intensity of our emotions temporarily. When it turns into avoidance is when we over-engage with it and then we avoid the original problem entirely. So that's the kind of quick version of that again. So somebody's asking, should we encourage clients to only use this when their ability to regulate doesn't work? Um, I'm not sure that I understand the question here. So let me answer and see if I'm getting it right. So um, we are encouraging that uh, our clients use this to help regulate their emotions as a distress tolerance strategy. And if we can use emotion regulation skills first, which we're going to go over in a moment, yeah, that's definitely ideal. But those are, again, more change-based strategies. And for a lot of us, right, uh, clients and practitioners included, we are often not able to use emotion regulation until we've kind of surfed the urge of when the emotion is really at its heightened place. 
So we sometimes have to use a stress tolerance first before we can use an emotion regulation skill, before we're like clear in a clear enough mindset to be able to make decisions. All right, so let's move forward to emotion regulation. Okay, so um, emotion regulation uh, strategies are skills that will help you better manage and reduce the frequency of your challenging emotions, such as anger, jealousy, sadness, shame, et cetera. And emotion regulation is really about emotion management. And specifically, we explore what are emotions, ways to identify and reduce the intensity of unwanted emotions, how to prevent challenging emotions from happening as often, and finally, finding ways to increase the experience of pleasurable emotions such as happiness and love. So not only are we helping our clients um, manage those challenging emotions more effectively, we're also helping them, like if this is the balance, right, where challenging emotions are often higher for our clients who come to DBT, we're trying to increase their pleasurable emotions so there's more balance, right? That's what life worth living is all about, is being able to have both of these types of emotions, right? We're not necessarily saying no challenging emotions because that's not part of being human. That's an essential part of our ups and downs, but helping to find more balance in their life. So again, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about uh, the kind of essential skills from emotion regulation just because for the sake of time. Um, and I'm going to, emotion regulation is the most challenging module in DBT period, right? It is, I think the most complicated thing that we teach to our clients. So I am going to try to teach these in the most basic way possible so that they're kind of understandable to folks. And um, we will go back if there's anything that's too complicated. So I'm gonna just go ahead and go to an, a later skill first and we'll, we'll backtrack in a sec. So we're gonna start first by talking about ABC please. So um, this ABC please is again, another acronym, which is all about reducing your overall vulnerability to um, challenging emotions and increasing the likelihood of pleasurable emotions. So um, let's, let's dive in actually. So first of all, the A stands for accumulating positive emotions. And again, this is about increasing the pleasant activities that your client has in their life by doing one thing each day that they find pleasurable. It can be something really small. It can also be something really big, like taking a trip, for example, if they have access to doing something like that. But having something in their day that they have to look forward to or they can enjoy every single day is really critical. Part of what we're also doing with this is we're not just saying, okay, go out and do these things, good luck, right? We may have to do some problem solving ahead of time, right? So for our clients who are dealing with depression, maybe simultaneously or negative symptoms of psychosis, we might have to help them figure out how to actually do these things and manage some of the barriers we're gonna get in the way. We also may need to do some work around actually noticing that they're pleasurable. So for example, I will often have my clients rate their mood before the activity, during the activity, and immediately after the activity. Because our clients sometimes don't pay attention to the fact that something was pleasurable. They just do it, right, and move on to the next thing. But again, if we're using our mindfulness skills here to approach a pleasurable activity, it's about being able to see kind of the full spectrum of what happens for you emotionally and if it is a pleasurable experience. Because the flip side is, is if somebody is repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again and it's not pleasurable, 
we might say, let's try something else, right? This is not working for you right now at this moment in time. It doesn't mean it won't work later, but right now, just not necessarily a great fit. So next is about building mastery. And this is about doing things that give you a sense of accomplishment at the end of them. So it could be doing something that you're good at, right? Let's say you're good at uh, piano, right? Playing the piano. That's playing the piano and making sure you're spending time doing that. It can also be things that uh, give you a sense of it being done and having a really clear byproduct, right? Things like doing the laundry, for example, right? There's a very clear before and after photo that can happen with that. And it can be very satisfying for people to have a sense of um, it's done, right? A sense of accomplishment. Because there's so many things in the world that we do where there isn't a clear endpoint, or we aren't getting there, or we're getting stuck, or whatever it is that's getting in the way. So again, increasing those kind of pleasurable emotions by doing things that you have a sense of mastery as you do them. Again, it doesn't have to be something fancy like playing the piano. I don't play the piano. These are all just an illusion behind me. My, my spouse plays them. But it can also be things like maybe you're really good at um, cleaning the bathtub, right? Maybe you're really good at helping a friend, right? Whatever it is, it's about figuring out what those things that, you're, that that client you're working with is good at and encouraging them to do them regularly, particularly when they're not feeling great, but also as a regular practice in their everyday lives. Next is about coping ahead of time with emotional situations. So for example, if you know you have a stressful situation coming up, rather than simply ruminating or worrying about it, this skill is about thinking through a plan ahead of time so that you're prepared to cope skillfully with all of the outcomes that are feared in that situation. So for example, if I know I have a difficult situation with my boss coming up and my brain keeps worrying that I'm going to get fired, right, or get reprimanded, even though I know I haven't really done anything wrong recently, I'm going to think through ahead of time what, in the, what I can do in the unlikely event that that would happen. Right, so the worst case scenario I'm, wor I'm worried about is I'm getting fired, right? And getting like humiliated at work. So let's say that does happen. You know, probably unlikely, but it's possible. I'm thinking through, what am I going to do before, during, and after to cope with that? So for example, I could go to the bathroom right immediately afterward and use the tip skill if I needed to. I could um, plan to call a friend for support who's available to me. I could eat my favorite comfort food on the way home. I could prepare my resume ahead of time to feel like, okay, I'm ready to apply for the next job if I have to, right? There are things I can do that can move me from a place of just worrying and rumination about something and instead move me to a place of, okay, I feel prepared, even though this is probably not going to happen. It's not like the way we do uh, earthquake preparedness in California, right? We prepare for the worst case scenario of course, hoping it won't happen, but we don't know. Um, and in fact, it may actually be likely to happen, unfortunately. Um, but we think through, okay, what do we do if for 72 hours, we don't have access to water and electricity, for example? What's our plan for meeting up with people, our loved ones? What's our plan for what we're gonna eat and drink? What are the kind of safety tools we have around? Do we have something to turn off the gas, et cetera? And so we're thinking through those things ahead of time. So I don't have to spend every day as a Californian worrying about the fact that an earthquake is coming. I know I already have my things in place. As I say that, I'm like, this is a plug for everyone to update their emergency preparedness plan. Okay. So next is about taking care of your mind by taking care of your body. And again, we think of this last section, the please part of ABC please, about emotional vulnerabilities. So 
this is about really the connection, I think, between your physical and your mental health. So I think of this as um, when we don't, let's say, sleep well, when we haven't eaten enough, when we're in physical pain, when we're experiencing PMS, uh, when we have stress that's happening in our life, whatever, those are experiences that tend us to make us more vulnerable to intense emotions. Meaning when I am hungry, I am more likely to get angry, right? That's what we call it, being hangry. That's a real thing. So part of what we're trying to do is prevention work, right? If we can reduce some of these things from happening, not that we can prevent everything, but reduce some of the intensity, we're more likely to prevent challenging emotions from happening in the first place. So for those of you who are familiar with the AA model, it's kind of like the hungry, angry, lonely, tired model, the HALT, same idea in place here, right? You're more likely to use uh, drugs or alcohol when you're feeling any of those things. Same thing, you're more likely to be emotional when you're feeling any of those things too. So this starts by things like um, balancing your diet, right? And that looks different for every single person, right? I'm not talking about uh, prescribing to a specific diet method. This is about like intuitive eating and figuring out what works for your client's body. So eating regularly throughout the day is typical for a lot of folks, staying away from foods that personally make you feel more emotional. Um, this also looks like avoiding mood altering substances, right? Drugs, alcohol, caffeine, right? Tobacco, those can all change our mood and how we're feeling. And again, make us more likely to experience intense emotions. This looks like prioritizing sleep. And this is such a big one for so many people, but is thinking about the importance of a good night's sleep and working with your clients around sleep hygiene strategies, such as waking up and going to bed at the same time every day, um, wearing an, ear, an eye mask or earplugs if there's a lot of stimulation in the area that they're sleeping, um, you know, any of those types of things. And DBT specifically also has a protocol in the manual for dealing with nightmares, um, particularly for people who experience PTSD. So that's something if you're ever interested to look into as well. And lastly, it's about exercising regularly, right? So doing some type of exercise or movement every day uh, doesn't necessarily matter the type, but whatever works for your client's body and for their needs. Also includes things like if you're sick, seeing a doctor, if that makes sense to do, taking your medication as prescribed, um, taking care of your physical health as part of that, because again, our mind and our body are interrelated, right? We all know that from experience, I think. Let's get into interpersonal effectiveness. So uh, let's see, interpersonal effectiveness skills are all about becoming more skillful and effective communicators who are more likely to reach our goals or objectives in a situation. So DBT talks about um, being more skillful in getting what you need and want from others, building relationships and ending destructive ones, and also walking the middle path. Again, we talked about that idea of like dialectics or finding middle ground. So again, a little bit of an overview here of all of our interpersonal effectiveness skills, where again, we're gonna get into really just two of them for the sake of time. So when you know you have a tough conversation coming up or you're in the middle of one, it's important to understand what your goals are in the situation if we wanna be effective communicators. Many times we get caught up in our own emotion or we lose track of our goals because the other person is persuasive or persistent at communicating. So we want our clients to essentially get more clarity for themselves around what they want from the interaction in order to be more effective communicators. So in order to do this, we ask them some questions to say, okay, do you know what you need, or sorry, do you need to ask for 
what you want, do you need to say no to a request? And if either of those is true, we use a skill called Dear Man. We're going to get into this in a second. Again, lots more acronyms to come. If that client says no, I don't necessarily need to ask for what I want or say no, we might ask, is the, um, do you want to work on or even improve a relationship with somebody else? Is that the priority for you in this situation? If so, we use the give skill. Or if you want to walk away from this conversation feeling like you have kept or improved your sense of self-respect, we use a skill called FAST. And each of these acronyms, Dear Man Given FAST, have essentially scripts, right, that come with them to help our clients essentially approach uh, these different types of situations based on their goals more effectively. Because again, I, when I think about folks who struggle with emotion dysregulation issues, they tend to be more likely to push too hard for certain things to the point of like being detrimental to a relationship, or alternatively, not push at all and get steamrolled over because they're never kind of advocating for themselves. And so these skills give us a clear sense of both what do you want going to that conversation and how can you be more persuasive or effective at getting it? Again, the idea being the more effective manipulators that we talked about last or yesterday. So we're gonna talk about Dear Man for a second together. And let's run through our script here together. So Dear Man stands for describe, express, assert, reinforce, stay mindful, appear confident, negotiate. Again, you do not need to memorize any of these acronyms. That is why we have plenty of handouts in DBT for these. So DBT again is a skill for asking for what you want or saying no to something. So we're gonna talk about Jimena, who we talked about yesterday a little bit and specifically, the scenario that she brings into therapy with us is that her partner goes out and often comes home late, but doesn't communicate with her where she is. And that is stressful for Hermina, right? She stays up ruminating. She's worried about her partner. She doesn't know what's going on. Her partner is not communicating with her. It is stresses her out. And then when her partner tends to come home, she goes off on her, right? Because she is stressed out by what's happening. And then that results not in sadness of like, I was scared, right? Or fear, but instead anger, right? Where then that actually ends up damaging the relationship further. So she comes in saying, this keeps happening. I don't know how to deal with it. So one of the questions I might ask Mina is what's your goal here, right? Do you wanna ask for what you want? Do you wanna say no? Do you wanna improve the relationship? Or is there simply no other option? And it's about having a sense of self-respect when you leave. And again, this depends on Hamina's answer here, but she might say to me, I wanna ask for something, right? I wanna ask for my partner to let me know when she's going to be home late. So here's how we would go through the skill. So just, we'd start with describing. So describing is just naming the facts of the situation, no interpretation, no wishes just yet, just what's happening. So for example, she might say something to her partner, like you told me you would be home by dinner, but you didn't get here until 11 p.m. Just the facts. We then move to express, and this is the part where Hamina talks about maybe how it's impacting her or her personal feelings about it. So she might say something to her partner like, when you come home so late, I start worrying about you and that's hard on me. There might even be more she adds there, right? Like, it makes me really upset and I get angry with you. Next is when we assert, and this is the part where we ask for what we want. So making a direct kind of request. I would really like it 
if you would call when you're going to be late. So again, specific request, and it's really important that it be behaviorally specific, right? Because if I ask for something like, let me know when you're gonna be home late, there's a lot of room for interpretation about what that means, right? What does it mean to be late? Uh, what does it mean to you know, reach out to me, for example, et cetera? We wanna make it really clear so you're there on the same page, there's no misunderstanding about what she wants or what she's asking for. Next is to reinforce. So again, in the principles of behaviorism, one of the most effective ways to get one's needs met or to get something um, to happen again from somebody else is to reinforce or reward them. People like being rewarded. Uh, and so you are trying to find a way to increase the person's likelihood of saying yes to your request by telling them that there's something in it for them. So in this case, she might say something like, I would be so relieved and a lot easier to live with if you were to call me when you're going to be late. Next is about staying mindful. So you all have probably experienced this as well as your clients, but it's really easy to be in a conversation and that person is really convincing or they change the subject or something happens and you just get totally off track and you lose track of what you're trying to say. And then you leave the conversation. You're like, oh crap, I didn't ask for it, right? Or I didn't push. So this skill is about staying mindful. And this might be like being a broken record when the conversation gets off track. So it's coming back and saying, I would still like a call if you're going to be late, right? Just kind of continuing to bring that back in. Next is about appearing confident when you say this. And this looks like whatever is culturally appropriate uh, for expressing confidence through body language for your client. So in some clients' case, that might be like looking, uh, sitting up tall and making eye contact. For other people, that might look a big different. So it's about understanding that kind of cultural piece for your client but helping them use that to their advantage, right? Because unfortunately, when people don't think we look confident when we communicate something, they are less likely to say yes to it. And so when we portray that through our body language, uh, tone of voice, et cetera, people are more likely to take us seriously and say yes. And then lastly is about negotiating. So it is certainly likely that Jimena's partner is like, no, I'm not gonna do that, right? Or it doesn't work for me or whatever. Even though Jimena has been very effective in her communication. So this is where we negotiate and say, okay, so how about you text me instead if you think you're gonna be late rather than calling me, right? You're trying to find some place to meet them in the middle that you'd be okay with. If you can't find that, one of the strategies is sometimes to use something called turning the tables, which is about turning it to the other person to come up with a solution instead and saying, what do you think we should do? I can't just stop worrying about you. What do you suggest? And giving it over to that other person to maybe come up with some options that might be you know, amenable for them. Now, of course, with all interpersonal effectiveness skills, like it takes two to tango, right? So Homena can be incredibly effective in her approach in either asking for what she wants or saying no, that person still may not agree to it. And so we just do our best to do, get what we need in that situation. So the next piece here is about options for intensity. And the next thing Hamena really needs to consider in this situation is how hard to push for what she wants in this conversation with her partner. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but many people with emotion dysregulation struggle with how hard to push, right? Either they push too hard or they do not push at all. And this is a tool that we can use to help them 
get a better sense of how hard makes sense to push in this situation based on a couple of different factors, right? Um, how much she's maybe given in the relationship because the relationship's about giving and receiving, her priorities in that moment, the other person's capabilities, the timing of their request, if this is the appropriate person to ask for it from, et cetera. So what Hamina would do in this situation would be to go through these questions and we'll read through them together and essentially answer yes or no to each of them. And she's only gonna know the answers to these, right? Like you might have some sense of their relationship if you've been working together for a while, but in general, um, you know, you're gonna kind of rely on her for this. And for each, let's say yes, that we write down for Jimena, we're gonna give that 10 points with the idea that if she answers, there's 10 questions, it can be up to hundred points. Um, so we'll follow along together. So is the person able to give or do what I want? I'm gonna assume yes in this situation. Again, we have to ask Jimena, but if her partner has a cell phone and has the ability, right? Like let's say they're not at work or someplace that they can't text, probably yes. So we'll say 10 points, right? Is getting what I want more important than my relationship with this person? So is having my partner call me to let me know that they're gonna be late more important than that relationship we have? Probably not. Will asking help me feel competent and self-respecting? Let's say yes. Again, making some guesses here. So 20. Is the person required to give me what I want? Nope. Am I responsible for telling the person what to do? Nope. Uh, is what I want appropriate for this relationship? I think we could say yes, right? That your partner communicates around things like this. Is asking important to any of my long-term goals? I don't know. So we'll leave that as a no for right now, but we check with Amina. Do I give as much as I get with this person? Right, so again, has that balance been good between the two of you? Again, we'll just say no for the sake of right now since we don't know. Do I know what I want and have the facts I need to support my request? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, has done kind of her research about what she wants. And is this a good time to ask? Is the person in the right mood, right? Timing is really critical. So that's maybe we'll say like, yes, right, for the sake of right now. So we'll say maybe there's 50 points that we've added up here. So what we do then is turn to this worksheet and I keep like we keep these in worksheets that we use with clients. This is not something any of your clients or you are expected to memorize. We turn to this table and say, okay, so if Hamena had 50 points as we added up before, what this suggests is that she can ask gracefully but also take no for an answer. What you'll see though, is that starting at 10, right? There is a suggestion not to push, right? This is either not good timing or there's no good reason right now to push. To 100 where don't take no for an answer, right? You are pushing hard in that situation. And this kind of gives us a guide. Again, uh, there's some variability based on what she responds with to each of these questions, but for where and how hard she might wanna push in this situation in order to be skillful and effective. So let me pause here for a second to see what questions you all have about this. Because again, this is a little complex. Okay, while you all are maybe putting questions in the chat, what I'm gonna also go over for a second is this skill also works really well for people who are saying no. Some of the script gets flipped a slight bit, right? In terms of like asserting, looks like the saying no part, for example, et cetera. And some of these questions might be slightly different 
but there is also kind of a same formula for thinking through how hard is somebody's going to push in this situation and when you're going to push for no, right? Continuing to take no, or to, sorry, to not take no, to push for no as the answer. So somebody's asking, can this skill work with a couple with history of domestic violence? Good question. So yes, and I think one of the real questions that you'd be considering in this options for intensity list is what does safety look like for us right now, right? If it is a distant history where that person feels relatively safe in the relationship, maybe it looks different from somebody where there's active IPV happening. Again, I would say if there is active IPV or there is a real threat of this, um, there is going to be a very different way we uh, kind of behave with an active safety concern in terms of communication rather than something like this. Because again, the, the result or the consequences could be increased violence at that point. So same thing with just stress tolerance, right? We don't use skills like that because we are, we're focusing on safety and a safety plan. That might be similar for interpersonal effectiveness skills, where instead we're working instead with the client on how do we end a destructive relationship, for example, rather than pushing for it to be effective and kind of trying to keep the relationship alive. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but that's kind of my quick answer here. Okay, great. So I'm gonna skip our behavior chain for the sake of time, uh, since it's 10.53. I wanted to show you all some other places to get more training, um, more reading on DBT, as well as for how to run DBT groups. And then I'm gonna open it up to questions so we can kind of come back together again. Okay, so somebody is asking, can you give an example of an effective comparison from the accept skills? Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple of different options that come to mind. So one is I have some clients for whom watching things like reality TV is a great comparison skill because it gives them the ability to um, ask, uh, to compare themselves to somebody who has gone through some other kind of shit that they are not going through personally and be able to kind of put that in perspective for their life. So that's one option. It can also be comparing themselves, for example, to a time when they were coping less well than they are now, right? So if they have a, a chronic issue that's happening for them, it may be saying, okay, well, when I was going through this before, I was maybe dealing with this less well and look how I'm dealing with it now, sort of to encourage them. So those are maybe two examples of how we could use the comparison skill for a client. Okay, um, we have probably time for one other question here. Again, you can put it in the chat, let's see. How does the training work and what kind of time frame do you think it takes to become an effective therapist with DBT? Okay, um, so the uh, gold standard for treatment training is through a organization called Behavioral Tech. That's on the slide, the last slide that I showed you all. It is Marshall Linehan's Institute and they do, I think, you know, the best of the best trainings for this. Um, the, depending on what you're doing, so the trainings are either five or 10 days. If you are starting a new DBT consultation team, it's 10 days. If you are joining an existing team, it's five days. Um, and I would definitely recommend starting there. They do also though have trainings that are skills only for DBT if you don't necessarily wanna start a full program. And that is perfectly you know, a great option to do for people who are wanting to do DBT informed treatment rather than you know, a full DBT treatment program as well. And how long does it take to become a DBT effective therapist? I don't know, <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I've been doing DBT about 10 years and I uh, find that I learn more every day and it's really important that I get good supervision, consultation, 
um, that I do recordings of my sessions when clients are amenable to it so I can have other people code them for adherence. Like that is an ongoing process that I think is important for all of us. But I don't know if I would say there's a specific time frame because I think it depends on how devoted you are to it, how much of your caseload is working on that, et cetera. Oh, somebody's asking to repeat the name of where to get trained. It's called Behavioral Tech. Thank you so much for your time with me the last two days. I hope I am getting you excited about DBT. And um, normally I would have us do a comment waterfall at the end. Um, what I'm gonna have you do instead is write down on your piece of paper or on your computer, one or two things that you wanna take away from this training. Again, kind of your pearls of wisdom, the thing you wanna keep doing, the skill you wanna offer your client, whatever. What are you gonna take with you moving forward? Write that down right now because you're gonna forget. Um, I would forget, right, if I'm in your situation too. Um, thank you everyone, really appreciate your time and energy and hope to see you again soon. Take care.